0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. So today, what I want to do is set the table for the series with a message entitled, Jesus Has Something to Say. And I think it's important we acknowledge that he has something to say to us as the church and that he has a right to say it. Um, We're called as the church the bride of christ and I think it's right that any bridegroom has a right to speak truthfully and earnestly to his bride And if that's what we are to jesus, he does have something to say to us There seems to be No shortage of opinions about what church should be like I I would bet good money that every one of us in this room walked in here this morning with some expectations Some idea of what a good church looks like and what a not-so-good church looks like. And depending on what week it is or what mood you're in, you've walked into this place and felt good or bad about this church. And probably you felt good or bad about every church you've ever stepped into because opinions abound about what makes a church good. I know that professional authors in the Christian sphere have lots of opinions about what makes church good. Uh, In my own library, I have 226 books on the topic of the church alone. And I don't mean like every every book I have is kind of on the church, but these are specifically on the church. I want to walk you through some of these titles just to give you an idea. Some of these books aim to unlock the riddle of what the church should be. Listen to some of these titles. Decoding the Church. That's DNA, by the way, on the cover. Transforming Church. Reimagining church, church turned inside out, and unlearning church. So, apparently, church is a riddle we need to decipher. Some of the books think about the future of the church and point us ahead. There's books like Church Next. Here's another one The Future Church, The Second Coming of the Church, The Blogging Church. Here's one of church 3.0. I, I think they just skipped 2.1, went right to 3.0. So that's very intriguing. I bought that book just because I had to know what, what this guy's talking about. Uh, here, some of them want to point us in the right direction. There's center church, deep church, vertical church, upside down church, and even the U-turn church. Unbelievable. So many books. Some of them try to give us a new spin, a new flavor of the church. So I have like 30 books of this category. There's Organic Church, uh, Messy Church, Dangerous Church, Hip-Hop Church, and Sticky Church. Kind of unpleasant title, but very interesting book. And if you are one of those type A people and you love tidy little lists, don't feel left out. There's books like that for you too. The 12 Challenges Churches Face, 11 Innovations in the Local Church, Nine marks of a healthy church, and probably my favorite in the context of this message, seven churches not found in the book of Revelation. So, I, I mean, this is just a sampling of the 226 titles I have related to the church. You can learn a lot about the church by reading, and the truth is I do appreciate how much energy and thoughtfulness some of these people have poured into these books. I have benefited from reading a good number of them and really repented of the wasted time reading some of them. Right. But with all that energy poured into it, I think that the emphasis is in the right place. We should be thinking about church and whether church is good or whether it's not good. But in the midst of all of that human writing, I wonder if sometimes we're in danger of completely missing the point of pursuing excellence in directions that Jesus does not point out to us. What I'm trying to say is, I don't think we have to read all of these books to discern exactly what the church should be like, because Jesus, the Lord of the church himself, wrote seven letters to say from his own heart to ours, this is what I want you to aim at. If you're going to get together in my name, here's what I'd like you to do whenever you get together. Here's how I define success or excellence or health in the church. Now, that's important because I think many of us, without being guided by these other books, carried into this place our own personal convictions, maybe the result of past experiences, even past pain, but you have a very defined idea of what What will keep you at this church and what triggers would cause you to leave for greener pastures? Am I not right? There are certain things that, if if I did, would probably chase you away from here, right? If I did a lot of finger pointing and yelling and pointing out individual people and saying, No, I just need you to know this guy sinned this week, and let me tell you how, a lot of you would be gone. So, there are things we have in our minds about what makes a church good and healthy and excellent. But those thoughts and convictions should first be informed and guided by the standards of Jesus and not by our own personal experiences and expectations. And so I'm excited about this series. I want to get you excited about it because it's Jesus saying directly to his church, here's what I want you to be all about. Here's where I want you to focus. So that's what the series is going to be about. As I set the table today for this series, what I want to aim at is this. Let's take a look at who it is writing the letters. Who is this Jesus who dares to speak to us about what our lives should be like? Because when you talk about letters, it's important that you begin in the right place. Who's writing them? Where is he coming from? What right does he have to say these things? And so that's what I want to look at this morning. And the first, uh, the first thing I want to point out about Jesus who writes these letters is that Jesus is the Lord and Master of the church. In verse 8 of Revelation 1, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's pretty big because what he's saying there is, don't make any mistake about it. I am God, and when I speak to you, I speak to you as your maker, as your creator, as your, your Lord. Now, I, I know that's familiar theology to us. But I'm not convinced that that's the way we always relate to Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we relate to Jesus kind of the way that um, those guys related to him in uh, the movie Dogma. Buddy, Do you remember Buddy Jesus, an invention of George Carlin? Buddy Jesus. He's like, "Hey," you know. And I wonder if that's not the way we conceive of Jesus. Because I hear us sometimes speak of Jesus in a way that does not give him the weight and the authority he really deserves in our lives. I know it's trite to say Jesus is God, but the challenge I want to offer you this morning is this. Do you actually relate to him as though he is God? Does he have that place in your life, that weightiness and gravity? Because he's establishing here that he has the right to say these things to us and that if anyone has the right to set the bar, it's Jesus who is the Lord and Master Of this church. Now, here's another thing I want to point out is when John was getting this vision, by the way, everything he writes in Revelation is through a vision that God gave him, and then he's relating it to us. He said, I turned to see who was speaking to me, and I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. And the part I want you to draw your attention to is this. He was standing in the middle of the lampstands, and later on in verse 20, it will be revealed that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, Revelation is one of those books you need a little hand-holding to understand. It scares me, and I'm the preacher. So I had to do a lot of study just to say a few sentences today with any confidence. It's a confusing book, but it's important that we make that connection. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands, and the lampstands are the churches. And if if I could boil it down, here's what it means. Jesus is not an absentee landlord phoning it in from long distance. Right? He's not the guy who lives three states over but wants to tell you what to do with your life. He stands in the midst of us. Practically speaking, what that means is every time we get together like this on Sunday, every time your community group gathers together, every time two or three of us does life together as the family under Christ, under his household, he is in the midst of us. That should, that should produce comfort, encouragement, but also a sense of reverence and humility. When you get together with your small group, and there's a little interpersonal tiff, and you know, you're a little annoyed by people, you have to understand that even as you're annoyed by these people and tempted to speak just as any human being speaks to another, Jesus is in the midst of us, and he is the one who has called us together. Every time we gather in his name, he is actually in our midst. He's not someone who directs us from far away, but he's intimately involved with the comings and goings and the ups and downs of our lives. That's critical for us to know because the picture that the ancients had of God was that God was somebody who either ate ambrosia and hung out in the lounge called Olympus and threw thunderbolts down at us at random just to see what would happen? Or he sat in a mountain waiting for for the villagers to throw a virgin into the volcano so that he would bring rain? That is not the God we worship. But sometimes when we hear people portray God, that's the way they speak of him. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't know what's going on. Why should I listen to what God has to say when he's not anywhere near me? But that is absolutely not true. God is always with us. His presence is actually here every time we gather in his name. And so when he speaks to us, we give him the respect of somebody who takes the time to stand in the midst of us so that when he speaks, he knows what he's talking about and he's connected to us relationally. It's like in the military. I've never served, but I've watched lots of movies. That makes me an expert. Okay. Um, it's like the difference between the general and the safety of HQ, miles and miles away from danger, moving units around on a board, strategizing and planning, versus the officer who's in the trenches with the troops. He's got the same blood stains, the same sweat, the same danger, and he's commanding them, charging as he runs in front of them. That's a different kind of authority, isn't it? Perhaps the general outranks the sergeant, but in the hearts of the soldiers... There is an authority that is recognized because you are with us. You're not phoning it in from somewhere safe, far from harm's way. He is with us. He feels what we feel. He knows the events, even the intimate, trivial details of our lives. He knows so that when we pray, we don't have to bring him up to speed on every detail. He was there. He watched us. And I think that gives him the moral authority to speak to us because he is one who is near. He then says, as I'm, as I'm writing these letters to the church, I want you to know what my expectations are of these letters. And he writes, he writes here, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says. So the expectation was that Jesus was giving this vision to John. He would record them in letters and send them out to the seven churches. And here's exactly what ended up happening is a a reader, which was actually an office in the ancient church, right? Not just a preacher, but someone who would stand and read the words of God would read out loud these letters to each church that was addressed to. And so he said, there will be a blessing to the one who stands and reads the truth of what I have to say to my people. That's my role. That's Pastor Frank's role, Pastor Jared's role. Anyone who preaches from this pulpit, that's our role, is that we are measured and evaluated on the basis of whether we stand here and speak courageously and faithfully to the word of God, saying all that he wants us to say and none of what he doesn't want us to say. Do you get that? I'm being evaluated every Sunday, not on the basis of whether I entertain you or make you laugh or keep you awake, but on whether I stand in front of God's people and speak for God so that it is as though he himself is speaking to us. So I am being weighed and measured. That's why very few people want to to preach. Who wants to stand in front of other people and go, yeah, this is what God has to say, and you're waiting for the judgment to come, right, if you're not faithful? But he also says blessing will come to the one who stands in front of the people and speaks truthfully what I have to say to the church. But get this. He also says a blessing comes to the ones who hear it and take it to heart and respond to what God said in obedience. See, the preacher is not the only one being weighed and measured in the giving of a sermon. You also are being evaluated and measured by the one who has the right to call us to account. And I have to be faithful to God, but so do you. Every time the word of God is preached in your hearing, even if it's in the car on the radio, whenever someone stands to speak the word of God faithfully and truthfully to you in your hearing, you are then responsible before your God to respond not only in agreement, but in obedience. Taking it deeply to heart and giving God the response of your life. I think that's important for us to keep in mind because I don't want this series to just be about informing you about what God would like the church to be like. Because we can do that all day, but if we don't respond to him in obedience, we will only have a blueprint and no one will pick up a hammer and drive the first nail. We have to always be in this mindset that whenever God's word comes through to us, there is a necessary response we have in obedience to the word of God. Are you with me? Do you get that principle? So, uh, yes, I am being evaluated every single Sunday, but so are you. Just keep that in mind as you hear what God has to say to his church. Here's another thing I see about the one writing these letters. Jesus is the lover of the church. Thanks, Steve. He's the lover of the church. In verse 4, in the first part of verse 4, here's what he says. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the salutation, the opening greeting of the letter that Jesus is writing to each of the churches, and his first words are grace and peace. That's very important to know, that the first agenda, the first desire on the heart of God for each of us is always grace and peace. Grace is undeserved benefit. It's mercy we don't earn. It's a release or a forgiveness that we could not have asked for or purchased on our own. It has to be granted from the one whose it is to give away. And peace is a quietness, a a settled spirit. This week I just read one of the most haunting and troubling articles ever it was about a guy who works for ESPN and followed Michael Jordan around very intimately for like a week just before Michael Jordan turned 50. I gotta tell you, I I like Jordan, MJ. I'm I'm you know I'm his boy. I love that guy, but reading this article just troubled me. It's the story of a guy who is haunted and cannot find peace. He just can't find any peace. He can't go back to basketball, but that's the only place he ever found meaning. And the way he, it's a long article. I will try to share the link somehow with you guys so you could read it and also be depressed. But man, I'll tell you, when you hear Jesus so, so frequently say peace to you, he's not giving some little trite truths like, oh blessings to you, blessings, blessings, blessings. It's not so trite. Because in the end, that is what every last one of us is chasing in this life. We need peace, and very few people have it. I want to challenge you on this, because some of you sitting here have no peace today. And you hear words like grace and peace to you, and they just roll off. You don't realize what he's offering is the very thing your heart cannot seem to find. And so you got to make money in order to feel okay. But even then you know it doesn't do the trick you got to gain power, influence over people, be famous, watched on television. Whatever it is that haunts you, you cannot find peace until God gives it to you. And when he says peace to you, he's offering something that grips people for the whole of their lives, ruins marriages because they can't find it, and are constantly blaming their partner. You are the reason I have no peace. That's just not true. They might be a contributing factor. But peace cannot come from anyone else. Peace can only come from the one who made your heart. And when he says, this is what I want for you, we need to listen because then everything he commands after that, he commands in order that in our lives we would find this grace, undeserved benefit and release, and that we would find this peace, the quietness deep, deep in our soul that we are longing for. We will find those things as we respond in obedience to the things he commands. He doesn't command us to get his jollies. He commands us so that through the agency of his commands, we would actually get what he promises. We would find our peace. We receive that undeserved benefit. He also says this. He demonstrates his love for us because he freed us from our sins by his blood. How's that for another truism that just rolls off our back? It's like, oh, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, amen. You know that. You could be awakened in the middle of the night and someone shakes you, what did Jesus do? He died for our sins and rose again from the dead. Thank you. I know that. I, I, the Gospel tattooed to my brain. But do you realize what he's done in offering that? Let me tell you a story that will help you feel this. Uh, Some years ago, my mom bought a brand new Toyota RAV4 SUV. And around that time, she was volunteering as a sponsor, sponsoring um, Campus Mother for a student group of Christians at Northwestern University campus. I don't know how she got connected to them. She does all these crazy things I don't know anything about. But one of the things that she wanted to do was bless these kids, these students, and they were most of them Korean American, and she wanted to bless them with a nice home-cooked meal. So she brewed up this giant pot of Korean soup that we call yukgaejang. It is the reddest, oiliest, smelliest soup there is. It's just like, it's potent. When you see it and you're not initiated, you will think that's like nuclear waste. You, you wouldn't want to... It's so red, it doesn't look like anything you should eat. And she put it in a pot and wrapped it with a little cellophane and threw it in the back of her SUV and drove to Evanston. And along the ride... It sloshed around. It spilled over the edges. And when she arrived, she's like, why does it smell so much like soup in my brand new car? This is two days after she bought the car, mind you. Now, this is a Photoshop re- re-dramatization of the stain. But, the, <laughs> but that's pretty much exactly what it looked like when I arrived on the scene. My mom called me in a panic and said, Dave, something terrible is that. I'm like, oh, no. She goes, my car. Brand new. Yukjejang all over the back. I got there; it was in the summer. She she had actually left it overnight for twenty four hours in the heat. When I got there, it smelled like a goat's large bowels had exploded in the back. I, I actually had to step back and oh my, God, like, just, <sighs> and and I spent six hours working that stain. Okay, I am a good son. I'm talking about I rented a shampooer. I bought every detergent, cleanser, deodorizer known to humanity. I worked that sucker. And when I was done, it was clean. But here's the thing. You couldn't see the stain, but I saw it in my soul. I knew this brand new car had... Korean soup so deep down under that. You know, the place you, unless you rip the fabric off, it's down there, all juicing up where I can't get to. And, you know, with my, I knew it was down there. I can't see it on the surface, but it's underneath and it's going to smell forever. I febrized it until I I, I thought I was going to get some kind of of cancer from it. And then, you know, like I was like, and you smelled, you know, spring rain from a mile away, but even under all of that covering, I knew that car's always going to smell a little bit like B.O. You're not always going to smell, but every now and then you'll be driving, you're like, oh, Fabrice, oh. It's the, it's the idea that you deal with it the best you can, but you know, even if no one else can see, you know it's there and it bothers you and there's it's beyond the scope of your reach. you can't get to that stain and make it unhappen you don't have the power to make it just go away you can cover it you can cleanse it but you can't just undo it and we live every day with that don't we think about the last time you screwed up i mean really screwed up you did something you just knew was wrong and you knew it was wrong because you felt the weight of it. No one had to tell you. You just felt gross about yourself. You were filled with regret and self-loathing. You felt the dirt on you, and you couldn't get the stain off. And so maybe you signed up for Tuba City, or I don't know what you did. Maybe you you, you volunteered for Seed. You gave extra offering. You prayed like But somehow you felt like, what do I do about this? I can act like everything's okay, put on a good face. No one knows there's a problem, but deep down I know I'm dirty. I smell bad. What do you do about that? Because every day of our lives, we're accumulating that stain, that smell. We are. And even if we can hide it from the rest of the world, you can't hide it from yourself. You know the things you say, even in your own head about other people, and the weight of it starts to crush you. And what Jesus promises us is he won't just febreze it. He won't just soak it off the top. He will erase it. He will control Z and undo it. He will actually make the stain go away. There's only one who can do that, and you can spend your whole life trying, but you will not do in a lifetime what Jesus does in a moment. This is who it is who tells us what we should be like. It's not someone who doesn't care about us. It's somebody who paid everything to show how deeply he cares about us. And he did for us something we could never have dared to ask. Something that would weigh us down with a crushing weight for the rest of our lives if he were not available to do something about it. I think that's amazing. Jesus is like the guy who would take the whole back of the car out and put a new one in. That's clean. That's satisfaction. When Jesus writes letters to the church, he writes these letters as the lover of the church. He says he's our bridegroom and we are his bride. As a dude, it's a little hard for me to accept fully, but I get it. We are his bride, which means this. Jesus relates to us not like the jerky husband who sits there and constantly nitpicks and criticizes and tries to renovate his wife, but he he speaks to us as a husband who loves his wife, has laid down everything for her benefit, and then says to her, I want you to be everything you were supposed to be. I want you to be radiant in your beauty. I will stop picking at you. I will bless you. I will pour out all I have for you. That husband will be heard that husband has a right to speak. And that is who Jesus always will be to us. Let me give you one last thing about the one who's writing these letters. When he writes, Jesus writes to us as the ruler of the world. And here's what I mean by that. He He's already the Lord of the church and the lover of the church. But that might lead you to think, well, yeah, but he's the mayor of a small town called Churchville. He only has authority among us because we elected him. We say, all right, Jesus, we acknowledge you, so you get to rule over us. But really, who are you against the backdrop of kingdoms and empires and governments and economies? What bearing does Jesus have when I lose my job, when my basement fills with sewage? when my car is underwater, when the place I work at blows up, or when I'm just running a race and some guy blows up a bomb near the finish line, where is, what, where is God, what bearing does he have in the backdrop of the real world, not this fake world in the church, but the real world out there? Because that's what we wrestle with a lot, isn't it? In here, we go, yeah, Jesus is here. I'm just afraid he's not out there. That here, he has as much power as we can conjure up in our imagination. But out there, he seems suddenly so small and unimportant and irrelevant. And so he says, make no mistake, the same one who is the master of the church and the lover of the church. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. He chose those words very carefully because at this point, the scattered church, the Christian community throughout the Roman Empire, was already being severely mistreated under the rule of the Emperor Nero. And you know, Nero was famous for his craziness. Even the Romans thought, this dude's crazy, we got to get rid of him. Eventually, he was assassinated. He burned down a good part of Rome in order to clear some land to build his new palace. He just didn't want to buy it from the other senators and stuff. So he just burned everything. And then as it was burning he blamed the Christians for setting fire to Rome. And as if to back up his claim that the Christians were responsible, he rounded up a bunch of Christians and he covered them with pitch and he drove stakes right through their bodies and hung them as lit lamps, torches in his garden just to show people he meant business. So the Christians were already a little nervous, as you might understand, because this guy wasn't nice and he had all the authority. You don't go up against the Caesar of Rome... And expect to come away winning. You just don't. It's as if you said to me, the authorities are after me. They've got a lot of evidence. I'm probably going to go away. I say, well, hey, you know what? But don't worry. Jesus is king. You go, yeah, thank you, Pastor Dave. That's so cute. You pastors all have the same. Thing. Jesus is Lord. That's so quaint. But I'm talking about the United States government. They got like guns and bulletproof vests and scary people like Don will knock on your door and flash a badge. And I don't, I can't win against that. So thank you for the hope, the the nice comforting sentiment. Jesus is in charge. But you know, I mean, we're, we're actually talking about real stuff now. Okay. Not like my best friend gossiped about me, but like, this is serious. And Jesus says, do you have any idea who I am? You look at these rulers, these Kings on earth, you think they have real power you need to understand who I am in relation to those people. Because if Nero was bad, he was just the movie trailers before the motion picture of Domitian. Domitian was one of the cruelest emperors that ever ruled, and his persecution of Christians was legendary. His cruelty was so graphic that with teenagers in the room, I'm a little hesitant to describe it. If you can't go see rated R movies, I don't want you to hear the depictions of the violence he did against Christians. But it was so troubling, even someone with as seared a conscience as me, I was bothered reading the accounts. My imagination kept thinking what these people had to endure. And it hadn't happened yet, but it would soon begin. Just after the reading of this letter, a very harsh persecution would begin. And they needed to hear words that would help them get through that, without abandoning their faith. And the word Jesus gave as a gift to the church was, understand this, for a time is coming when the emperors of this land will seem so mighty in your eyes, so great, no one can stand against them. But know this, their cruelty and injustice will not go unaddressed. They may win the round here, but you need to know who I am to them. They will give an account before me because I am the ruler of the kings on earth. And one day, these guys who thought they were powerful will tremble in front of me and give answer to the things they did. You know, there's this crazy description, and when I read this, here's what I see. I, I see an ancient man trying to describe in the words and the paradigms available to him in his day a scene that was otherworldly. It would be like... Somebody from the year 200 trying to describe having seen the motion picture of the matrix or trying to describe GPS navigation to somebody after time traveling. He's going, it's like, um, imagine if you could fly in the sky and tell people where to. He's struggling for words to describe this thing. He's seeing it. But how do you talk about something you can't categorize in your world? And what he sees when he looks at Jesus sounds really lame compared to what I think he saw. His head and his hair were white like wool. So far, you got Albert Einstein. As white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. I don't know if you've ever heard thunder out in nature, there have been a couple times, actually even recently, where you know the kids, when there's thunder, right, don't you have to go to the rooms because like, you know, the windows shake. And a couple times you're trying to comfort them, but there's one that's really close, really loud, and even you get a little bit like, dang, it was a little bit too much. Have you ever heard thunder from outside? I remember there was a, a time when we were swimming in our apartment complex pool and it started to rain. The lifeguard shut down the pool and said, Run home now. So me and my brother were running because he said, Lightning and thunder are coming. So we're running for our lives and the thunderclap hit us from behind. And Steve remembers he was knocked to the floor because it felt, like, it felt like a bomb had exploded right behind us. It was so loud. He fell on the floor and I thought my brother was dead. I was like, Oh man, I'm going to tell mom when I get home, you're dead. <laughs> He had fallen because he was so frightened by how loud it was. And when he says this, here's John saying, his voice when he talked was like thunder. I mean, it's the best language he has available to him. It's the loudest thing he's got in his world because Dolby THX, you know, Studio Movie Girl had not been invented. And he's like, I just don't know. It's like mighty ocean waves. It's a sound so vast, you know it's bigger than any of us. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. I don't know what he's saying, but it just sounds weird. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And what John is saying is, I saw Jesus in his glorified body. And he wasn't some pathetic mewing lamb. No, he was, this guy was, he's bad. You don't, want to, you don't want to have to stand in front of this guy and go, I thought I was the boss down here. You don't want to have that day where you got to stand in front of this Jesus and lay claim to the authority you wielded in this world as though you were actually the top of the food chain. You don't want that. I think most telling is not John's description, but John's reaction. He said, when I saw him, fell at his feet as though dead. That's exactly what happened to my brother because he's a little weaker constitution than I am. When he heard a little thunder, he fell as dead. And I thought he was dead. And being the bad brother I am, I just kept running. I was like, dang, right? But that's, it's not so much the description, but his reaction that really tells us the story. What do you do when you see something that overloads your circuits? He became catatonic. He was so overwhelmed with the sight of Of Jesus in his splendor, removing the mask, showing us who he is, really. This Jesus, who we talk about so casually, who we speak of like he's a genie in a bottle or a teddy bear to comfort us, and he shows himself, and John's only response is, he's dead. And here's what Jesus does. He goes, hey, idiot, get back, don't be afraid. This scary stuff is for those guys out there. The ones who don't recognize me, acknowledge me, they need to know who I am because this is the one they will give account to. You who are mine, who belong to me, you see a different side of me. Don't be afraid. I'm scary, but only to them. You know, Michael Jordan, that article I read, here's the thing, I think I would love to spend a week hanging out with Scottie Pippen. I wouldn't want to spend five minutes hanging out with Michael Jordan. It doesn't sound like a pleasant guy to be around. You know, you, t- you can learn a lot about someone by what their security team codenames him. Do you know what Michael Jordan's security codename is? His bodyguards refer to him as Yahweh. Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. But to his inner circle, to his best friend, his fiance, his old-time friends, It's safe. They can say whatever they want around him; He keeps them close. And I think it's like that with Jesus. If you belong to him, as fearsome as he is, you do not need to be afraid of him because he has already put you behind his back and protected you. He has spoken for you. But make no mistake, just because you don't have to tremble in front of him like that doesn't make him a toothless wimp. The world who thinks they're powerful will one day see and be called to account. And they will know what real power looks like. They will simply find themselves on the wrong side of it. But to us, he says, I have this authority over everything. But when I speak to you, you don't need to be afraid because I'm speaking to you as one of mine. Get up. Don't cower away from me. I am one of you and you are one of me. That's an amazing gift to us. For a moment, just to glimpse exactly who he is. It's like that rare moment where, you know, you're like the big shot at work, but your wife treats you like you're a mope, you know, and like, oh, just take out the garbage. And then she comes to work, and everyone's, oh, sir, hello, sir, what can I? she's like, oh, you're not such a loser after all. And just for a moment, her eyes open, she's like, oh, my man is the man. And it's it's like that moment where you go, this guy I thought was so small, so irrelevant, so localized. You see him, you go, no, he's actually the boss of it all. And when I pray to him, when he speaks to me, this is who I must always bear in mind is speaking and hearing my prayer. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. He is the first and the last, the almighty. And this is who writes to us what our lives should look like and what he wants from us. What response can you give to someone like that? Our Lord Jesus is not someone to be made light of. And yet when he treats us, he treats us with love, dignity, mercy. He is soft because he loves us, not soft because he is weak. And two weeks from now, we're going to look into some letters he wrote to the church. And they weren't just letters intended for seven churches in Asia Minor. They were preserved for us because they are meant for us. And when you hear these sermons and when you read the text, you will marvel at how relevant the words of Jesus are even for us today. It's my prayer that we will all hear the word of God and then we would feel this weight of response to become the church which Jesus is envisioned and invites us to become. If we'll do that, it will also become a church every one of us will want to go to until the day we die. That's my earnest hope and prayer as we go into this series. I hope you're excited and that your heart is filled with anticipation. Why don't we bow and let's pray together. You know, once in a while, somebody who's become too familiar, like we got to step back and look at them again. And get a a fresh appreciation for who it is that we thought was so familiar, so regular and ordinary. And I think for many of us, it's needed in our relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I know for me, the name Jesus rolls off my tongue a dozen times a day, very casually. But I want to invite us to step back a little bit and think about who he is to us. He is the Lord of this church. It belongs to Him. He has the right to order our lives. We have gotten every benefit from Him, but He has the right to determine what our lives look like. He purchased our lives at an incredible price. And He didn't do that because He wanted to raise an army. He did it because He loved us. The God who is so mighty is also so tender towards the ones He loves That's an amazing juxtaposition. Such strength and such tenderness wrapped up into one being. And to us, who he loves, he will always say grace and peace to you. That peace you're looking for, you can have it with him. And he says to you, don't be afraid of me. The world that doesn't know me should quake, but you don't ever be afraid of me that way. And the Jesus we thought was the mayor of our small town turns out to be the king of the world. Governments will bow. Economies will bow. Companies will bow. There is no authority higher than the authority of Jesus Christ. And if we are going to follow him, you must come to a point in your life when you acknowledge that in truth. He is not a joke. He is the ruler of it all. It is this Jesus who speaks to us and who hears us when we speak. So let me just invite you now to reflect on that and give God whatever response comes from your heart. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.